0: If you came into the sanctuary and didn't have an opportunity to pick up two study sheets, uh, we have some at the front we'd be happy to uh, pass out. Raise your hand if you need the study sheets for this evening. You need to have two. We're at that point where I know where we are going in terms of the weeks that remain. Tonight, Lord willing, We're going to cover chapters 11 and 12. The most difficult chapter of Mark is chapter 13. And I'll clarify that for you, Lord willing, next week, on why it is the most difficult portion of the entire gospel. But I intend to devote all of next week uh, to the exposition of chapter 13. Then fresh perspectives on the Passion will take us to the end of August, and we'll close with a uh, a unit on the resurrection, Mark chapter 16, uh, Lord willing, on September 2nd. So that's the plan we have, and I think we will be able to say we have looked carefully at the Gospel of Mark. Now what I'm trying to do for you tonight is I invite you to turn to chapter 11 and 12 of the Gospel is something that is a brand new approach for me. Uh, These are materials that, uh, especially the entry into Jerusalem, that might well be expounded on the occasion of Palm Sunday. And then we skip over to the crucifixion the burial, and on, in Holy Week, and then the resurrection, but the materials in between are seldom looked at very seriously. And I thought that we could do something fresh tonight. As I wrestled with the question, how best to present this material, I felt we could do so in terms of asking four questions and then leading you through the steps that I have embraced as I've sought to resolve those questions for myself. Now, not all of them can be resolved. But my experience is, as you're doing Bible study, you might might come to the study center and say, "Uh, Bill, we're doing a study on the Gospel of Mark. What can you put in my hands? And perhaps you pull off the shelf my commentary, and there you read what I have to say. And because you have studied with me and you have confidence in me, you are prepared to accept what I say. But I think it's much more important for you to be able to wrestle with the kinds of questions that I have to wrestle with, and then enter into the process, how do we read the text? How do we wrestle with the detail what are some of the considerations that come into play as we seek to answer these questions and here are the four questions we'll wrestle with tonight was Jesus entry into Jerusalem a triumphal entry that's the way we normally treat it certainly it's the way we teach our children and if you belong to a liturgical church it's likely that on palm sunday you will go home with some a uh, palm and i have seen oftentimes people will cut these up and make a little cross pin it perhaps on the on the mirror board of the car and so forth and uh, we uh, we certainly enjoy having our children take palms wave them around and And we welcome the Lord Jesus in this special way. So was it indeed a triumphal entry? Second question. Is it correct to compress into the period of a single week the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Jericho all the way to the empty tomb that is from Mark ten forty six to 16, 8. Certainly, that's the way we treat it in the liturgical calendar. We have Palm Sunday, and a week later we have Easter. Is that a correct perspective on Mark's understanding of this period? Third question. What about that unproductive fig tree? When I told one of my adoptive sons that i was going to deal with that question he said good because that's always bothered me and it may have bothered you as well you remember what the situation is jesus is hungry and he goes to a tree that's in full leaf and yet mark tells us in a parenthetical remark it wasn't the season for figs and yet the tree is destroyed from the root up, what on earth is going on with this unproductive fig tree? And then finally, uh, the fourth question: What about those conflicts in Jerusalem? What's the significance of the interaction with various Jewish authorities that Mark treats in chapter at the end of chapter eleven? and into chapter 12 that will bring us to chapter 13 which we'll take up lord willing next week now we're going into a new unit tonight and that unit extends from 111 through 1337 and it has to do with jesus prophetic ministry in jerusalem and i want to underscore that word prophetic ministry I find the key to what's going on here in the fact that we have a tradition a prophetic action in Israel and when John the Baptist appeared on the scene there was an enormous excitement because there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for some 350 years now imagine an absence of sound biblical teaching in this sanctuary for 350 years and suddenly Scotty makes his appearance and he begins to teach and there is an excitement in him and an excitement in us as suddenly we are exposed to the word of God once again. That can only begin to give you an impression of what the excitement of the presence of John meant in Israel. But Jesus comes in that same tradition. And one of the oldest titles for Jesus was Ho Prophetes, the prophet. So he has a prophetic ministry in Jerusalem. And we will find that from the arrival at Bethany and Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, on the outskirts of Jerusalem until the events of the resurrection, all of them occur in and around Jerusalem. So the concern of this new section, eleven one to 13.37, is Jesus' prophetic ministry in Jerusalem. And it consists of certain symbolic actions that are accomplished in the first Three days within the city where there is an interesting pattern. Jesus arrives at the outskirts of the city. He comes into the city during the day and then he returns to the outskirts in the evening. Take a look, for example, at Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphagy and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now you have to know that for ritual, liturgical purposes, at the great feast days, Bethany and Bethphagy were considered a part of Jerusalem. They were the outskirts of the city. The problem was this. We in Franklin are a city of about 29,000 people. Jerusalem was only a city of 50,000 people. But on three occasions, the great pilgrimage occasions, that city of 50,000 swelled to 250,000 persons. So whether you stayed in Bethany or Bethphage or in Jerusalem itself, it was all considered one area. So we begin with eleven one on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now notice verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, that is, we were getting close to sunset, to the end of the first day, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So there's the pattern. He comes into Jerusalem during the day and he returns to Bethany in the evening. Now notice verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And there you have the incident of the fig tree. Verse 19. When evening came, they went out of the city. That is, they returned to Bethany. Third day verse 20 in the morning as they went along they saw the fig tree withered from the roots there is the beginning of the third day and one of the mysteries of the gospel of mark is there is no indication when the third day comes to an end and that's what poses some of the questions i have shared with you so we have certain symbolic actions that occur within those first three days. And then that's followed by conflict with priestly and scholarly authorities that Jesus provokes by his very presence in the holy city. Now during this period, Jesus continued to prepare his disciples for their future ministry. And one of the aspects of chapter 13 we're going to discover is their future ministry is connected with mission. And it is associated with suffering. And that has implications for you and for me as well. Certainly for the vision that we have as we begin at Franklin, move out, to the regions, and finally to the nations of the world. And what Jesus does, he exhorts his disciples to watchfulness, to vigilance, in that specific context of mission and suffering. Now the limits of the section are defined by the passion narrative, the narrative that has to do with Jesus' actual sufferings in the city where we have a very precise chronological indication, fourteen one, now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. That will introduce us to fourteen one to 15.47, and then, of course, in 16, 1 through 8, you have the account of the empty tomb. Now let's begin to look more closely at those four questions that I posed for you. Question number one, was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem a triumphal entry? Now you can be forgiven if you are ready to stand on your feet and say, Bill, Indeed it was, because pastors I have trusted have told me so. (laughs) You can be forgiven for that, because that's a dominant point of view. It certainly is the 80% point of view. So how do I wrestle with this question? How ought you? wrestle with this question well what I begin with is a recognition that Mark 11 1 through 11 is filled with vivid detail and yet it's remarkably restrained in asserting that Jesus is the Messiah in fact we're going to find there is a certain ambiguity in the account. The entry was ambiguous, and its meaning was concealed even from the disciples themselves, according to John chapter 12 and verse 16. Counting, John introduces in chapter 12 the entry, into Jerusalem and gives us the basic details the detail about the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the king of Israel Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now here is the clue. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, that is, after he was raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him. And that he had done, and they had done these things to him. So that's a good thought to keep in the back of your mind. The disciples themselves found the entry into Jerusalem ambiguous. So, interpreting, in interpreting this account, it's important to appreciate there's a certain tension between The assertion Jesus is the Messiah and a restraint on that assertion. Now it's John who quotes this wonderful prophetic oracle from Zechariah. Look. Your king comes. He rides upon a colt. That's the great messianic oracle of Zechariah nine nine, And it already contains the three most important elements of this entire account. Namely the entry, see your king comes, the messianic animal riding upon a colt, the fool of an ass, and then the jubilation of the people. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But the important point to notice is Mark does not cite this oracle. There is no reference to Zechariah 9.9 in Mark's account. And Jesus' fulfillment of this marvelous prophecy occurs in circumstances that paradoxically conceal the meaning of the action. In other words, there was a continual stream of pilgrims that were coming into Jerusalem. Imagine a city of 50,000 growing five times within the period of a day or two. So a continual stream. And Jesus is part of one of these waves of pilgrims that comes into the city. He may well have been recognized as the great prophet of Galilee. There may well have been a moment of enthusiasm to see him coming up for the feast. But the recognition that this was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9 is apparently not there in Mark. Now the presence of the great crowds, the waving of the green the antiphonal chanting of the Hallel Psalms Psalm 113 to 118 which are listed in your Bible as songs of ascent because you sang these hymns as you went from Jerusalem uh, from Jericho which is below sea level up to Jerusalem itself it's a long way if you've ever been in Israel and you've made that trip it is a long climb and you would sing antiphonally one group to the other these marvelous hymns of ascent now all of these details the feeling of exaltation when the pilgrims finally see the temple do you know the rabbis had no love for Herod the great who had rebuilt and beautified the temple. But even the rabbi said, he who has never seen Herod's temple has never seen beauty in all of his life. Why, it gleams like a mountain of white marble and gold in the pilgrim's eye. So you can feel, you know, something of the exaltation that every pilgrim had as he made or she made her way to Jerusalem. And the point I want to make under 1D is that all of this would have been present with every wave of pilgrims, even if Jesus was not among them. Now what follows is very important the exaltation that's recorded in Mark 11, verse 9 and 10. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Falls short of asserting that Jesus is the one in whom these marvelous words are fulfilled there is no indication that the crowds of people know that this is David's son. That he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Because the truth of the matter is this. This greeting was given to every pilgrim who came to Jerusalem on the occasion of the great pilgrimage feast. Why? It's given to you as you make your way from Babylon, ancient Parthia, and you've come to all of this long way to fulfill an obligation to be in the city at least on one occasion in your life, if at all possible. Do you know what you say when you celebrate Passover and you do it in the United States? You say, next year, let it be in Jerusalem. Next year. Now, of course, we can get on a plane and we can go and actually We can be there. And many of the Orthodox Jews who pray earnestly this prayer uh, could buy a ticket and be there. They don't do so for various other reasons. But the truth of the matter is, this is the greeting that you give to any pilgrim that comes into the city. And here is a very important point. When Jesus entered the city, the group of pilgrims who had accompanied him quickly dispersed. And Jesus appears to have come to the temple accompanied only by the twelve. Notice that in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything not as a tourist but as the Lord of the temple who suddenly comes to his own temple in fulfillment of Malachi one. but since it was already late there was no prophetic action on that occasion he went out to Bethany with the twelve now a great often repeated theme of preaching on Palm Sunday is the fickleness of the crowd. The crowd that welcomes Jesus with this marvelous greeting turns out to be the crowd that cries crucify him. Don't believe that for a moment. The crowd that gives this wonderful greeting to all of the pilgrims and perhaps to the pilgrim who comes from Galilee is made up of those who come to the city as outsiders, whereas the crowd that cries crucify him is made up of insiders who were influenced by the priestly authorities of the day. It isn't the same crowd at all. But you have to know that overlooking the temple was a great tower called the Tower of Antonio. And there there were Roman auxiliary troops, that would be moved down from Caesarea to Jerusalem, especially on the occasion of the great feasts, because that was the time that there was likely to be an uprising. And it's the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 13, that speaks of certain Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with the blood of their sacrifices because there was such a disturbance that they brought into the city but the entrance of jesus into the city doesn't cause the soldiers to come out there is no disturbance the crowd quickly disperses goes to their quarters and after a short while jesus himself returns to bethany as the evening is coming on so my answer was the triumphal or was the entry into jerusalem a triumphal entry is no it was not there was a marvelous ambiguity there now there is a very nice little detail uh, that uh, you might like to have as part of the background and that's the detail that the rabbi said if Israel is worthy then the Messiah will come riding on a white horse And, of course, in Revelation 19, you have that wonderful picture of the one who has written on his thigh the word of God who comes on the great white horse and leads the church triumphant against the powers of the world. So if Israel is worthy, the Messiah comes on a white horse. If Israel is unworthy, the Messiah comes riding on the colt of a donkey. So even the entrance of Jesus into the city was itself a prophetic action and a statement that Israel was not worthy. All right, question number two. Are we correct in compressing the sequence of events in 1046 to 168 into a single week extending from Palm Sunday to Easter. Now you have to know that that understanding is very old. We can trace it back to the 4th century when it was customary to celebrate liturgically Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Easter, and that has solid support in Scripture itself. Turn to John chapter 12 and verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verses 12 through 15. The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, and so forth. So John is absolutely convinced that this, indeed, is what the story is all about. It's very difficult to determine whether Mark understood the tradition from eleven one to 16.8 to cover a single week there is no reference to passover in mark until chapter 14 verse 1 the passion narrative and that doesn't have any chronological links with the preceding section and mark never says jesus came to celebrate the passover in fact We know from rabbinic sources, that is, early Jewish sources, that the shouts of Hosanna, the branches of green which were cut in Jericho and brought with the pilgrims up to Jerusalem, because Jericho is tropical, below sea level. And Jerusalem is, of course, quite exalted, about 3,800 feet and and quite barren so you never could go in the fields around jerusalem and cut down greenery but that the greens in the hand the allusions to psalm 118 and to zechariah 9 through 13 the reference to the mount of olives the interest in the temple and its relationship to the gentiles all of which mark features in 11 1 through 19 are more appropriate to the Feast of Tabernacles which takes place in the fall than they are to Passover, the feast that takes place in the spring. Now, I did some work for you today. And I checked on the setting up of the tables of the money changers because I thought that might be an important clue that I hadn't picked up when I prepared these sheets. The month of Adar is roughly equivalent to our month of March. It is followed by Nisan, roughly equivalent to our month of April. Passover takes place on the 14th of Nisan, so the middle of the month of what we would call April. In the provinces, the tables of the money changers were set up on the 15th of Adar, roughly say March 15th, the reason that they had to be set up was that Exodus 30 had said, you must pay the dues that are due at the temple in the Hebrew shekel, but in the first century the Hebrew shekel no longer existed, so they had to be paid in a shekel, in the coinage of Tyre because the Tyrian shekel was the closest thing to the old Hebrew shekel. And you probably have heard the reason Jesus overturned the tables was because of high interest the money changers took. All of that is foolishness. The interest was only 24 of a shekel, simply to take, because a shekel is a weight of silver, and it was to account for the fact that as you, as you handle money, it gets worn down. So it was a very slight interest rate. That wasn't the problem. But in the provinces, these tables were set up on the 15th of Adar, and the tables were set up in the temple area on the 25th of Adar. Now we don't know when they were taken down but presumably the setting up of the tables of the money changers in Jerusalem was the time when the tables were no longer being operated in the provinces so from the 15th to the 25th you've got the tables of the money changers and then the temple tax was due on the 1st of Nisan Passover is the 14th in other words you had to pay the temple tax two weeks before Passover. And then the tables were taken down. So Mark at least understands that the period we're talking about was at longer than one week. That probably two, two and a half weeks, something of that nature. And I think that that uh, is verified by the reference to the tables of the money changers where the problem was not usury the problem was that these tables were set up in the forecourt of the temple in the court of the gentiles the one place where gentiles could come and worship the lord god of heaven and earth and jesus was so indignant that gentiles were kept from worshiping the lord god that he drove them out and overturned the tables and enacted the indignation that was proper to that matter. All right, D. In 1449, when Jesus is taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, he refers to the fact that he had been teaching daily, every day in the temple courts. And the implication is there had been a longer ministry than simply a ministry of a few days. So the Mark and narrative, if we only had Mark and not John, could conceivably permit a ministry that went from the Feast of Tabernacles to the Feast of Passover, a period of approximately six months, as opposed to the thought of a single final week and as i pointed out earlier those precise temporal links in eleven one to 25 where jesus comes into the city during the day and then leaves the city by night are simply lacking in 11:27 to 12:34 and it is conceivable that those five conflict situations in jerusalem were over an extended period of time even as they were in Galilee. So the question can be left open, but it does have some bearing on the interpretation of the narrative. All right, what about that unproductive fig three? Now the account is usually understood as a miracle of destruction and the question naturally arises, is the cursing of the fig tree, for that's the way Peter understands it, according to Mark eleven twenty-one, the tree that you curse, is consistent with what is otherwise known of Jesus' character? I have seen commentaries that have said why this account simply has to be wrong because it is so inconsistent with Jesus' known character. The problem is that in 11.13, you have two statements that I've already highlighted for you. seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And yet Mark tells us, In a parenthetical statement, it was not the season for figs. Now the fig normally becomes ripe in the month of June, whereas Passover took place, as I said, in the middle of April. So the placing side by side of two seemingly contradictory assertions heightens the difficulty of this passage for the explicit statement that it was not the season for figs appears to make Jesus' action arbitrary and meaningless now here the key is knowing something about the Old Testament you'll remember that several of the Old Testament prophets engaged in what has been called prophetic realism they would enact A little drama for example on one occasion God said to Ezekiel build a wall and imagine me going down to Franklin Square and I begin to build a stone wall I don't get too far before the police arrive on the scene but Ezekiel builds his wall God says take a sledgehammer and break through the wall now put your furniture on your back and walk through the break in the wall. In the same way, why the Babylonians will come, they will break through your walls, your people will put their furniture on their back, and they will be taken into captivity. It's a prophetic, real act. And I've given you some passages where you can see this for yourself as you take these notes home and investigate these passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I believe that Jesus used his hunger as an occasion for instructing the Twelve. And the key to the incident is that events have meaning that goes beyond the face value. They become significant as they are interpreted. So the unexpected, the incongruous character of Jesus' action and looking for figs when it isn't the season of figs is going to get the disciples' attention. The second thing you have to know from the prophets is that the prophets frequently described Israel as a fig tree. It was a favorite metaphor. And in the Old Testament, the destruction of the fig tree is associated with judgment. And in that context, the fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day. And what happens to the tree the terrible fate that inevitably awaited Jerusalem. In fact, Victor of Antioch, who in the fourth century prepared the first commentary on the Gospel of Mark, said, Jesus used the fig tree to set forth the judgment that was about to fall on Jerusalem. Now that's certainly Mark's understanding of this account. Because remember that sandwich effect I taught you about? How Mark begins to tell a story, and then he inserts another story that's related to the first story, and then he rounds off the first story, the ABA, or A prime. That's exactly what we have here. Jesus goes to the fig tree. He examines it. He by no means pronounces a curse on it, he simply makes a declaration, no one will eat from your fruit again. That should have gotten the disciples' attention. Then you have the action of the overturning of the tables of the money changers, clearly a judgment account in 11.15-19. to 19. And then verse 20 and 21, the reference to the fact the fig tree was withered from the roots up. So what we have is another instance of prophetic action. And the point is, in F, just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony on the feast days concealed the fact that Israel has not brought forth the fruit of righteousness that God demands. And that may have some relevance to us. Both incidents, the incident of the fig tree and the overturning of the tables of the money changers have the character of a prophetic sign that warns of the judgment that will fall upon Israel for honoring God with their lips but not their heart. And we need to hear this as well. Now, there is a very important detail here that I haven't included for you. I have shown you that Mark will sometimes make a comment to the congregation. He'll have a little parenthetical expression. And you remember in the call of the fishermen, Jesus calls them to follow him, and I will make you fishers of men. And then Mark has a little parenthetical comment, for they were fishermen. Now you wonder, why would he include that little parenthesis? But whenever Mark has one of these little parenthesis introduced by the conjunction for... He is telling you the background will be provided by an Old Testament scripture. And in that case of the fishermen, it's Jeremiah sixteen sixteen, where God says, I am sending for many fishermen, and they will catch them. I am sending for many hunters, and they will hunt them down. And it's a judgment text. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that that's exactly what the little parenthesis where Mark makes a comment for us in verse 13 is all about. When he reached the tree, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. That's Mark's comment, which is absolutely true of the Passover time. It wasn't the season for and i'd like to suggest to you that the passage to which he alludes is jeremiah 8 13 which is a passage that occurs in the context of god's judgment upon the false scribes and the priests of israel and this is the way it reads i will take away their harvest declares the lord There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the fig tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given to them, I will take away. It is a sober judgment text. And Mark wants you to recognize the illusion. Now the problem is, we may know our New Testaments but we don't even read in the Old Testament very often. And how many of us can say, oh, of course, why, Why he's alluding to Jeremiah 8.13. Well, I can't do that. I had to do quite a bit of homework to find Jeremiah 8.13. But I share it with you, not to say, aha, good for you, Bill, you did your homework, but to say, we need to be reading Old Testament, New Testament. We need to know all of Scripture, or we're going to miss a great deal. And if God said that to his people, his chosen people, his covenant people, do you think that judgment doesn't fall upon us? Are we the people who honor God with our lips? Jesus. I am resting, resting. Finding who you are. And I raise my hands and tears come down my cheeks. But is my heart, is my heart really the Lord's? And what about you? So that's what I believe is going on. With a fig tree. <laughs> Let's take the last question. What's the importance of those accounts of conflict in 1127 to 1225? Well, certainly, one very important insight is that hostility toward Jesus came from all of the influential groups within Judaism the Pharisees the Sadducees the biblical scholars of the day so that the leading idea of 1127 through 1225 is that the leaders of the Jewish people have rejected the will of God now that's made absolutely clear in the parable of the tenant farmers in the vineyard in chapter 12 the representatives of the Sanhedrin who come to question Jesus are like the leaders of Israel throughout their history who have continually rejected God's messengers from the prophets to the son notice that in that parable I'll pick up in Mark 12, verse 3, or verse 2. At harvest time, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Do you see the panoramic indication of the history of redemption and the rejection of God's leaders of those he had sent? Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. It's the history of redemption. There is therefore a very clear implied judgment on the leadership of israel and the climax of the parable in verse 12 or the climax of the account makes that clear then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them but they were afraid of the crowd and so they left him and went away the leadership knew they had been condemned by jesus Now, D is something brand new. It's possible that the four accounts that follow show an awareness of the traditional structure of the early Passover liturgy. The type, the sequence of questions proposed corresponds to four types of questions that were recognized by the early rabbis. Questions of wisdom which concern a point of law is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Questions of mockery which frequently bear on the resurrection. There was a woman who married a man, he died, she was given in levirate marriage to his neck to the next oldest brother, etc. Finally she's been the wife of seven sons in the resurrection whose wife will she be see the mockery and then questions of conduct which center on relationship to God and men that's the biblical scholar who comes and says which is the greatest commandment Jesus speaks of loving God with all of our heart and loving neighbor as self and finally they recognized questions of biblical interpretation which often concern the resolving of two passages of scripture that would appear to be in conflict. How can scripture speak of the Messiah as the son of David when David himself in Psalm 110 verse 1 said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Now it's only in the Passover Eve liturgy that the four types of questions appear precisely in this order. And there, the first three questions, the question of wisdom, the question of mockery, the question of conduct, are posed by first a wise son, the mockery one by a wicked son, and the question of conduct by a son of simple piety. The fourth question, having to do with the reconciliation of scripture, is posed by the head of the family himself, and Jesus asked that question. So that arrangement, I think, sheds light on the sequence in Mark twelve thirteen to 37. So I believe that in this section of the gospel, which we would quickly move over, Mark puts us in touch with elements of the early Christian tradition that were already associated with the Passover Eve celebrations among the early Jewish Christians in the first decades following the resurrection. It is very old and ancient tradition, I believe, that accounts for the grouping and the order of the sequence in Mark's Gospel. Now, I hope that this has been helpful to see the kind of rich background knowledge of the Old Testament knowledge of Judaism in the first century can provide for us that's one of the insights that drives Michael and I and others to build a study center to set up a biblical research library in which you are welcome to come and have access to 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 all of this kind of background material. Let's pray. Our Father, in the midst of being instructed, in the midst of looking at some puzzling questions, we would not want to forget that judgment begins with the house of God. Now, if it begins with us, what will be the end? of those who do not even know your name. Give us a heart to seek purity before you, to seek to love you with all of our heart, to love one another with all of our heart, and then in love for those who do not know you to reach out and to build a bridge across which Jesus can walk. This we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You are the same.